1600 KIVA, 93.7 FM. I'm Eddie Aragon, The Rock of Talk. Glad to be here with you for another installment here of Dr. William Summers' medical show. Life Imagine here in the Kiva live show last week, actually a double show, and we had a good time. We appreciated all the phone calls, 16 and all, it went and uh, counted back. And uh, I just really appreciate everybody who tunes in, listens, and uh, most importantly patronizes uh, Dr. Summers and his wonderful invention called Life Imagine, and not to mention those of you who are picking up the phone and uh, giving him a call to his alternative health clinic first. Let's start there. His alternative health clinic is open. It's a private pay clinic. Mention me, The Rock of Talk. Get yourself a nice discount. He has innovative approaches to non-opiate control of chronic pain, alternative approaches to cardiovascular health, anti-aging on bioidentical hormones, memory and brain dysfunction issues addressed, as well as second opinions. Pick up the phone now, dial 878-0192, 878-0192. See the doctor. He'll take good care of you. And, of course, the product I'm on, I want you to be on. I love the pills. They, I know they make me sharper and better. I've seen it over a period of two and a half years. You can pick up Memory Vitalizer and Life Imagines. Imagine. And all you have to do is go to a local store here. Remember, folks, shop local. Sharon Care Pharmacy. That's in Belen. Duran Central Pharmacy. Sam's Regent Pharmacy, Highland Pharmacy, Best Buy Pharmacy, Manol Pharmacy, Evergreen Herbal Market in Rio Rancho. You can go to Moses Country Store in the North Valley on 4th Street or the Village Apothecary right there in Cedar Crest. Or if online, confined to the home at vitasprings.com. Vitasprings.com, that's V-I-T-A, springs.com, memoryvitalizer.net or dial direct, 800 Six zero six zero one nine two. That's eight hundred six zero six zero one nine two. Doctor Summers. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My gosh, seventeen exciting days left until the election. I mean, with what broke this week on Hunter Biden in the uh, New York Post. Do you realize the New York Post is the longest living publication in America? I didn't know that until you just told me. Wow. And it was started by a guy by the name of Alexander Hamilton. He was the first editor in chief. It's amazing how the liberals are attacking the one guy that they like the most, and that is Alexander Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> have you, I think the favorite call among the uh, liberals is, have you seen Hamilton yet? Have you watched Hamilton? I actually did go see Hamilton in New York City. I think I would miss it after they snubbed our vice president. There you go. I wouldn't, uh, I'll tell you, you would not be uh, uh, bad for, for doing so. We always start with some uh, great uh, quotes to kick off the show with 17 days until the election, Dr. Summers. Well, it's the political uh, season, so I think probably something I would normally credit to uh, Mark Twain, but it actually was a guy by the name of Henry Cade said, the problem with political jokes is they get elected. (laughs) I got a call from a young uh, patient uh, who called me all frantic, and and she said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, uh, Joe Biden thinks he's running for the Senate. I just don't, I'm not with that, is the way she expressed it in her Valley talk. And I said, well, I mean, what they're doing here is they're running an early to moderate dementia case uh, to run the presidency of the United States, which I am offended by. Uh, But I guess uh, only certain classes of people can be offended, but I am offended that they would run an early Alzheimer's patient. At any rate, uh, the problem with political jokes is they get elected. Well, here's another one from a a financier from uh, early in the 20th century, Bernard Baruch, who said, Vote for the man who promises the least, 
where he will be the least disappointing because all politicians are generally disappointing. Not so much so with Mr. Trump. Um, but uh, here's another one from our famous governor, Gary Johnson. Are you ready, folks? Regardless of who wins an election, it should be time for optimism and fresh approaches. That's a very wise saying from Gary Johnson, who uh, has had some gaffes of his own over time. Uh, you know, what's Aleppo? But at any rate, regardless of who wins an election, it should be time for optimism and fresh approaches. And I, let's keep that in mind on November 4th. Now, uh, here's one that uh, I've applied from Winston Churchill, who said, Joe Biden occasionally stumbles over the truth, but he hastily picks himself up and hurries on as if nothing had happened. Actually, he was talking about one of his opponents, but I do think that might apply in this particular case. Well, we have a special guest today. Most of the time we don't have guests, but this is a very special one, and indeed we're privileged to have his time here today. G. Michael Dempsey, M.D., Medical Director of the Albuquerque Neuroscience uh, Institute, actually. A uh, little introduction here. He's a local native, native son of New Mexico. Uh, he got his Bachelor of Science here at UNM and then traveled north to Colorado and went to medical school there. After that, he pointed east and went to the University of Maryland for his internship that's in Baltimore. And then he traveled west again. He seems to be peripatetic going back and forth across the continent. Anyway, he ended up at the University of Iowa as a psychiatric resident under an old professor of mine. Uh, and uh, we sort of shared some, some interesting experiences in our uh, approach to psychiatry because, frankly, the University of Iowa was one of the early leaders in changing the whole field of psychiatry from Freudian uh, type of approach to psychiatry to what's called a medical model. He's done research projects in bipolar affective disorder, depression, Alzheimer's disease, GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder. I guess it's easy to say GAD. Panic disorders and schizophrenia. His CV actually, to my eye, looks better than most of the so-called professors over at the University of New Mexico. Uh, yeah, Dr. Dempsey, welcome to the show. You brought uh, a friend with you today. Yeah, uh, Andy Riddle, Anderson Riddle, we call him Andy. Yeah. And he's a longtime coordinator. Uh, yeah. He he's a, has a chemistry degree from, I think, Biola and uh, Computer Whiz, good with patients. Yeah, mm. good to be here, Dr. Summers. Yeah, we're, well, welcome to the show. Hopefully you're not like Voldemort. <laughs> who was also a riddle, I believe, from Harry yeah. Potter days. You guys have got current research projects going. What are they? Uh, well, we're working on a postpartum depression study. It's a, uh, a new or experimental medication for postpartum depression. Women are having depression within a month of giving birth. Um, and it's only taken for two weeks. So that's different from most uh, antidepressant medicines that you have to take for four to six weeks. Before you know it works, <laughs> or it doesn't. Right, right, so this is a really quick treatment uh, period. Um, so that's a new, uh, different class of medicine that we're looking at, um, and specifically for people who are uh, having uh, depression, you know, right before birth or right after birth. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. We used to call that the baby blues back in the day. 
But well, it was studied by George Winokur, incidentally, and George found out that half of the postpartum depressions occurred before the partum. Yeah. <laughs> and so half of your postpartum depressions occur before the birth of the child. Yeah. Uh, at least in the literature. The sponsor now calls that peripartum. Peri, oh, it's peri. Yes. Okay. Yeah, meaning around. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So can a woman qualify for treatment if she gets depressed before she gives birth? Right, yeah. For this study, we're looking for people whose depression started within the last trimester of uh, pregnancy. Or yeah, the, usually that's yeah. the peripartum time. Right, right. That's when the hormones are swinging all over the planet. Right, right. And this uh, medicine is derived from a hormone. Uh, it's inspired by a progesterone. Uh, so it's trying to look at balancing out those hormones again after uh, partum, after delivery. In the bioidentical hormone world, we call progesterone Mother Nature's Valium. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is calmative. It actually improves sleep patterns as well, which is kind of... So this is a derivative or a, a variant of uh, progesterone. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Uh, allo, allopregnanolone, I believe. Is yes. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pregnenolone, if I recall the chain, the way it goes is the liver produces cholesterol, which they dump into the blood that goes to the adrenal gland. The cholesterol is converted into pregnenolone, which then goes to dihydroepiandosterone, which is then distributed downhill to everything from cortisol to estrogen to progesterone to aldosterone. Uh, so it's it's up there as almost a master hormone, and they're using that to treat depression. That's right. Yeah. And it's fascinating. The old studies, uh, I don't know if you remember any of these, uh, Mike, but they were using 100 to 200 milligrams of DHEA, dihydroepiandosterone, an adrenal hormone, to treat depression. Yeah. With great success. Well, actually. and uh, in the late 80s, mid mid to late 80s, I used uh, uh, progesterone uh, vaginal suppositories. Mm-hmm. for depression in women, and sometimes it worked. Yeah, it, every once in a while, these old clinical tricks that we use uh, get picked up by a drug company and actually make it to the pharmacist shelf. That would be lovely if this turns out that way. And, of course, high progesterone that kind of occurs in pregnancy anyway, so it's not a hormone, even a derivative of a hormone that might be uh, problematic for the kid right right uh we are asking the women though to bottle feed for during the study so that's um we don't really know what the effects would be on the babies and so that's been one of the challenges is to find uh women who are bottle feeding or willing to talk with a lactation consultant and switch to bottle feeding well we've got a good audience here so let's put out the word if you know of anybody who is about to have a baby or did have a baby within six weeks is it Uh, and is depressed, has the baby blues, feels a little bit down. There is a research project that they're doing at Albuquerque Neuroscience. What's your number over there? Yes, it's 505-848-3773. It's uh, 505-848-3773. And calling is the best way to get in touch with us. We can talk with you about your situation. Yeah, but you have a website, too. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, www.albneuro.com, A-L-B-N-E-U-R-O.com, albneuro. Let me break in real quickly, uh, Will. Uh, they only have to stop breastfeeding for about three weeks, uh, and, and they can pump 
uh, in the meantime, and then use uh, bank milk. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize we had a milk bank the way we have a blood bank. Yeah, yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah, and then they can resume uh, breastfeeding, you know, mm-hmm. after after the study. Also, this stuff is uh, related the allopregnanolone to the Zoreso that has been out for a few couple of years, oh, which good. is a okay. A 60-hour infusion. I think we talked about that once. Yes. Mm-hmm. We didn't study it, but it's it's out there. And so this would replace 60 hours of uh, laying, being in a room with an IV running. Yeah, uh, and you have studies on uh, one of my favorites, uh, constipation. That's a, a big issue in older patients. Uh, and in fact, I've seen people die of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people sort of laugh at me about it, I say, hey, what's the most common cause of when a horse dies of natural causes? And the answer is constipation. A 20-year-old horse is always at risk of obstipation, constipation, and death. And that's pretty serious stuff because when the bowel bloats up, the bacteria that's in the stool gets into the bloodstream and causes a collapse, vascular collapse, and they die in shock. So this is a serious human condition, uh, chronic constipation, and it's not uncommon in older folks. In fact, it's not uncommon in Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, this is a unique uh, treatment. It's a capsule made in Israel that vibrates Mm -hmm. uh, at a certain time. The Israelis are quite innovative, aren't they? Oh, they're they're really uh, into it, yeah. Yeah. So so they put a capsule in that... uh, You swallow it. And and it uh, goes like a heat-seeking suppository to the right place and begins to dance and vibrate uh-huh. and stimulate the bowel and get things moving in the right direction. It's, it's got, not like Linzen's. No, it has a little uh, computer in it. You can program it to uh, go off eight hours, ten hours, whatever. Hmm. And okay. I jokingly tell the patients if they bring it back, they get fifty dollars. Wow, <laughs> there, there's right. motivation. Right, but they were not asking for the capsules back. No, that's a, that's a joke. That's a joke. Yeah, I guess we have to label it these days. Yeah. <laughs> now, fibromyalgia. What in the world is fibromyalgia? Everybody must know, but let's let's define it. Well, uh, that's chronic pain above and below the waist and on uh, both sides of the body. Uh, used to be there were also, I believe, 18 pressure points on the shoulders, uh, forearm, hips, knees, uh, but they've done away with that. It's now just pretty much chronic pain above and below the waist and both sides of the body, usually, a, usually associated with insomnia. The and word vague, it, ambiguous, and diffuse uh, are three words that come to mind when I think of fibromyalgia. Yeah. It's everywhere, it's everywhere, and uh, it's... You know, so it's diffuse, and it's vague because if you say, "Well, does it hurt at this particular pinpoint?" No, it's kind of that general area, mm-hmm. uh, and it's therefore people think of myalgia, which is muscles mm-hmm. or an inflammation in the muscles, or uh, in the tendons that are at the ends of the muscles, and yet that's never really been established, has it? No. I mean, if they were to do a muscle biopsy, they wouldn't see a bunch of white cells gathered around chewing on the muscle. It's just the muscle aches. Yeah, and typically uh, the sponsors, the big drug companies, uh, run a whole battery of uh, uh, inflammatory lupus, uh, scleroderma, uh, 
rheumatoid arthritis assays to make sure that it's not. And there's no specific uh, blood test that says this is fibromyalgia. Now, rheumatoid arthritis has a rheumatoid factor you can draw blood for and say, yep, that's rheumatoid arthritis. Exactly. Here's on a piece of paper a number, and therefore you must believe that's rheumatoid arthritis. There's no such animal. No, it's, it's really all the tests have to be negative. Yeah, everything is negative except for you just don't feel right. Yeah. And treatment for fibromyalgia in the past has been what? What's the standard treatment? Andy, do you have any? Well, uh, there's a lot of different treatments people take. We think that, uh, you know, the fibromyalgia is pain in the, um, in the uh, or the brain is being sensitive to pain signals coming in from the body. So it's a central sensitization in the spinal column or in the brain. And so we either try to turn down the uh, pain yeah, volume. Yeah, dull it uh, down, if you will. Yeah, maybe gabapentin or Lyrica. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, Lyrica is based on it. It's basically Lyrica is a derivative of uh, Neurontin. Right, or we try to turn up the filter that stops those pain signals from coming in, and that would be uh, something like Cymbalta or Venilofaxine, um, Milnasopran, Civella, the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, uh, another another class and and there are a lot of different treatments that people take you know the NSAIDs and well actually fibromyalgia is a setup for people to get involved with opiates and in fact probably opiate addiction starts with fibromyalgia in a number of cases yeah it doesn't work very well it doesn't work very well because uh, that specifically uh, goes after one receptor um, and uh, this is much more diffuse shall we say <laughs> So what is the new treatment? What are you doing? What's the research project? Sure, yeah. We're looking at a sublingual tablet that dissolves. You take it at night. And we're trying to address that sleep quality issue where people hopefully sleep better during the night. Then they'll feel more refreshed. You know, this is the hypothesis of the plan. And that with that refreshed or uh, restful sleep, that that will help their brain to then tune out the uh, pain symptoms that they're having or the pain pain, uh, sensation perception Mm -hmm. um so yeah we're looking to address specifically the sleep quality issue how how do they approach the sleep quality issue certainly not the benzodiazepines but well it's a it's a muscle relaxant but it's released quickly and again it's under the tongue so the idea is that it would be on board during the night you know for that eight hour period that people are sleeping but then by the morning time the uh, mechanism or the uh, way that it's delivered, it would have worked its way through the system, and then hopefully people wouldn't be feeling drowsy or sedated during the day. So is this a uh, slow uptake or rapid uptake? You say it's sublingual? Yeah, this is rapid uptake. Mm -hmm. Again, so that it gets into the system, people are sleeping well, and then it's uh, cleared out through the body. By morning time is when you look at the sleep architecture. Does this uh, medication actually give you normal structure sleep uh, architecture with good uh, stage three, stage four sleep? And I think that's something we're going to try to address with the study. We're going to be collecting data on people's sleep uh, quality, uh, time asleep, and so you know the, the study will actually address that question if it's actually giving people better quality sleep. They wear a device, don't they, that kind of measures uh, sleep and restlessness? I believe so, yeah. right. That's kind of cool. In other words, the approach here is rather novel. I, I think that the pharmaceutical industry 
And that is probably uh, one of the more novel things. They're approaching it in a logical way. If you get good rest at night, you're ready for the next day. Right, right. And so for people with chronic insomnia and, you know, vague and diffuse complaints, this might be a great study for you guys. Exactly. Now, is it, are you looking for males, females, uh, people in their 90s, people that are 9? I mean, what are the limitations of the group you're looking for in this study? Sure. Fibromyalgia. 18 to 75, so we're not going really high with the age. Uh, we're looking for people who've had pain for three months or more. Um, no other explanation for the pain. Yeah, um, mostly fibromyalgia I think of as a woman's disease, but there are occasional men who have it. That's right. Yep. And and you like them to come already with the label fibromyalgia, or they just suspect it themselves? Both. Right, right. Uh, we can do an evaluation at the office uh, for the clinical trial that will go through the fibromyalgia criteria and uh, and diagnose that if it's present, um, or if you know someone's already been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, that would be uh, you know perfect as well. We'd have to verify it. Right. Mm -hmm. Now the study goes on for what length of time? How long is it? Uh, and is it a double blind where you might end up with a sugar pill? It is. It is double-blind, um, so we'll be randomly assigning some people to the new medicine. Some people will be taking a, med a pill that looks the same but doesn't have any active components in it. And the study's four months long. So it's a good length of time for people to uh, maybe uh, see a change in their symptoms, um, and hopefully that will, uh, you know, in that four months, we'll have good data on their improvement. Let me clarify again, though, that we don't assign them. They're assigned... Uh by, by the pharmaceutical of, company. Yeah, by, yeah and it's done by a confuser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I call computers these days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, there's a very good study for you folks. If you know of anybody that uh, is suffering from fibromyalgia and maybe some sleep disorder, this might be a good thing to give a call to Albuquerque Neuroscience. And Andy, what was that number again? Sure, yes, 505-848-848. Uh, Three seven seven three, and again yes five zero five eight four eight three seven seven three. It's actually kind of a almost a palindrome five zero five eight four eight three seven seven three. Yeah, so this is real science in action. Uh, incidentally, let me ask uh, you guys: Why did the chicken go to the séance? Uh, uh, I saw the answer here, well, no. to get to the other side. <laughs> to get to the other side, yes. <laughs> well, you know, that reminds me of the, the great story about the chicken gun. Have you heard about the chicken gun? No. I haven't heard of it. Oh, uh, well, they had a high-speed uh, train that they were testing in Britain, and they were concerned about flocks of birds hitting the windshield and uh, breaking the windshield on their high-speed uh, locomotives. And so they reached out and contacted NASA and told them their problem. And NASA said, oh, we have an answer for you. It's the chicken gun. <laughs> and they said, well, well, we'll send you one. So they sent the chicken gun uh, to the Brits, and the Brits uh, promptly uh, loaded it and fired the chicken at the windshield of the locomotive. It went right through the window and embedded the chicken in the back part of the uh, cab. And so they uh, quickly got back in touch with NASA and said, what do we do? What do we do? And NASA sent back a three-word response, thaw the chicken. 
Oh, That's boy. a true yeah. story, supposedly. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was meant to fire non-thawed chickens. Devils in the details. birds yeah. that you come across in a flock are rarely frozen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So that's that's real science in action, the chicken gun. Anyway, uh, you guys have one on Alzheimer's. You've been doing a lot of work on Alzheimer's over the year. So what I, is the I, the new protocol you guys well, have worked on? I think on? we've done close to 20 studies. Yeah. And, and, we, you and, and, I've and 19 failures out of 20 so far. Uh, I think 20 out of 20. 20 out of 20, okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, well, you know I have my own theories on Alzheimer's. And yeah, it's an inflammation. Yes, and and the, I noticed the literature is coming around to my point of view. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the question is, how do you treat that? And actually, uh, there are a bunch of drugs in hand that you can use uh, to slow down inflammation in the central nervous system. It's just they haven't applied them for that indication. Yeah. But what is the new study that you guys at Albuquerque Neuroscience are doing on Alzheimer's? Well, we're we're we are trying to block inflammation via the. Um, mouth, there's a gingivitis bacteria that produces a um, protein, uh, gingipanes, which is a toxin or an irritant. There's some evidence that that may get into the brain, and so we're blocking the production of that toxic or that inflammatory molecule by bacteria in the mouth. Um, You know, whether that's actually... And that'd be an anaerobic bacteria, doubtless. Correct, yes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we will collect data. Uh, we need volunteers to help us test this hypothesis, uh, but we're looking to see if we can block that uh, bacterial uh, inflammation protein from uh, seeing if blocking it will improve people's memory, thinking, performance on everyday activities. Is this like a toothpaste, or I mean, how, would, how do you apply it? It's a capsule. It's taken by mouth. It's an oral medicine. So it circulates. So you're the trying to get to the gingivitis from the circulation on the inside, as yeah. opposed to local means. Right, right. and we ver we verify that they have this particular uh, organism by uh, visit to the dentist, a dentist mm-hmm. who's part of the study, and he uh, takes culture. Takes the culture basically at the junction between the tooth and the gum. Yeah, and, and this uh, culprit will be hanging out just underneath the gum. Yeah. Uh, gum line. But, you know, for uh, years now, the dentists have been telling us that uh, gingivitis is the cause of Alzheimer's, heart disease, bad breath. Well, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ingrown toenails. I'm not so sure about that theory. Yeah. And Bald, uh, how about baldness? Oh, baldness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All of it. All of the above. Low T, high uh-huh. T. You know. Yeah. Uh, so this <clears throat> is based on that theory. And. Who's eligible? If someone is uh, at end-stage Alzheimer's, are they a candidate for this study? They already have it pretty bad. They're in a nursing facility. Uh, They can't remember who their wife is, or they misidentify their wife and their sister, or they think they're running for the Senate. Uh, uh, (laughs) Is that person a candidate for this study? Uh, we are looking for people who can do some tests. We're looking for people who are not at that end stage, people who could still um, remember a few words and, and maybe know where they're at. But people who So are already, you could take a stage three, stage four. Right. We, we can take uh, someone who uh, has Alzheimer's. You know, probably they've been diagnosed by a doctor already because it would be pretty apparent by their behavior and their memory um, or other memory thinking functions are being impaired. 
but they're still probably able to, uh, end up, you know, they can go to the store, they can go to the restaurant with someone else, and, and someone else would look at them and wouldn't think that they're ill. Uh, but if you started talking with them for a few minutes, then you'd quickly realize that uh, they're having some difficulty. I always love that study out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I think it was UNC did it, where they studied Alzheimer's patients driving versus non-Alzheimer's patients, age matched. And they found the Alzheimer's patients were the safer drivers. Some of them are pretty careful. Because they know they've got Alzheimer's. Yeah, they're compensating. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the non-Alzheimer's patients may have other deficits in vision and hearing, et cetera, that they don't pay attention to. But the Alzheimer's patients are hypervigilant when they drive. Yeah, just one little sideline here. I think there are people at UNM uh, Med School uh, who are looking at serratia, I think, in the nose. Really? Going up the uh, olfactory nerve into the... Going up second cranial nerve. Yeah, into the midbrain. That's where Alzheimer's starts. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, actually, that uh, will fit in with the aluminum theory. Remember when aluminum was the cause of Alzheimer's? Right. And everybody said, well, you know, how come the Romans got it? They didn't use aluminum pans. They used lead pans, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> but the truth is is that the greatest amount of aluminum is called aluminum silicate, which is the dust that you breathe in. And that aluminum goes through the nose into the second cranial nerve and can travel up into the brain and create mischief. Mm-hmm. And that was behind the aluminum theory. The problem is they really don't find aluminum in the central nervous system until after they're down the road with Alzheimer's. It mm-hmm. isn't you accumulate aluminum, then get Alzheimer's. What happens is you get Alzheimer's, the blood-brain barrier gets altered, and then the aluminum comes. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a backwards thing there. But this one, um, you, any stage of Alzheimer's up to final stages is basically a candidate. Or even people who are just elderly and don't have Alzheimer's, since we're really talking about preventing it. Well, they would need to have problems with their memory and thinking that are affecting their daily activities. They wouldn't have to necessarily have been diagnosed already, but they would probably be aware and their family members would be aware that uh, they're Memory and thinking is not normal for their age. Um, so they would need to have dementia already. Is there a quick way for the layperson to test that? Uh, to test for dementia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, It has some accuracy. Sure. Well, we do a staging test at Albuquerque Neuroscience. Very simple, but it uh, can give you a little bit of information about where your memory thinking is. It uh, asks you to remember a few words and draw some pictures and write a sentence. And uh, sometimes people will have difficulty on, you know, some of those elements. And it might, um, you know, if you get that test done, it might kind of get you pointed in the right direction. The simple test I use is uh, I'll reach in my pocket, pull out my wallet, have them identify it. Then I'll pull out some keys, have them identify those as keys. And then I'll reach in, get a comb or a pen or something or a cup of coffee or whatever, have them identify it. And I say, now I'm going to ask you to remember those three things, and I'm going to come back in three minutes and ask you. And I will literally clock it three minutes later. If they miss one, then they're a candidate for an Alzheimer's study. Yeah, you're suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. Just another little sideline. Uh, two or three years ago, uh, we, d- we were involved in a large study called the Generation Study that was looking at people who had uh, amyloid uh, 
gene- genetics predicting uh, ApoE4, I believe. Mm-hmm. But who, but who were not yet demented, which is what you were addressing. That right. could we use people who? But generally speaking, if you're trying to test a drug now, you got to have symptoms. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, and then to you're measure. looking to actually reverse the symptoms. Yeah, hopefully not over minutes, but over months. Yeah, uh, the problem with the generation study is the drug we were using, a secretase inhibitor beta, right? And, and actually made them worse. Yeah, yes, yeah. it would. And uh, you could also get some uh, acceleration of central nervous system inflammation. I yeah, believe. so so that was canceled. But that's the problem. If you're looking at normal people and you want to prevent, which is of course ideal. Well, you're looking at five-year studies, and you know that's tremendously expensive and time-consuming. So, we this most the great majority of the studies we do are are people who already have measurable symptoms mm-hmm. that we can check see if they're getting better. And how how long does that study? If a person volunteers for that, how long does that study go on? Yeah, it's a year and a half on the double-blind period of the okay. study, and then they can go into an open-label extension. Open label means everyone's receiving the study medicine. There's no inactive capsules, mm-hmm. and that's a two-year-long follow-up study. So there you have it. That's a very good study for those folks with earlier or mid-stage of Alzheimer's. And uh, where does one call to get involved with this? 505-848-3773. Um, and, uh, again, calling is a great way to talk about your situation. We can discuss the study with you in detail. 505-848-3773. Well, time is flying along. I've got a couple of more questions, but I want to jump ahead to a topic, and that is COVID-19 facts. Uh, this has become such a political football, and I just love it when they use the phrase, oh, we just follow the science. Well, I've got two scientists here in studio, and I... My view is is that the when the politician says just follow the facts, uh, that's the last thing that they're dealing with. Quite frankly, well, just just uh, you actually have three scientists here, don't you? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. I, well, I would consider you as one. Oh yeah, I thought you may. You meant. Oh, I meant you two guys, but I'll, I'll join the party. Yeah, I would think so. I wanted to point out that uh, despite all the bad mouthing of hydroxychloroquine. There have now been 93 studies of hydroxychloroquine, and 55 have been peer-reviewed, and almost all of them have given favorable results if it is applied early on, especially in an outpatient setting or early in a hospital stay. So hydroxychloroquine should be part of the armamentarium. I noticed that our medical director for the state of New Mexico neglected to point that out in his most recent um, uh, proclamation uh, from the governor's office. Um, the FDA is hoarding over 60 million doses of hydroxychloroquine in what's called the strategic national stockpile, as if this isn't a reason to release some of that. But then again, that's pretty much the way the FDA works. They give a bunch of legalistic reasons for discouraging hydroxychloroquine, even to this day, and to justify their hoarding of it. Uh, Remdesivir, do you have any thoughts about that, guys? Oh, I'd heard it's uh, uh, effective, and I also heard that Dr. Fauci may have owned part of that. 
He has, he and other members at the CDC actually have a patent interest in remdesivir. And at $3,000 a treatment, that could mean uh, some bucks go back to the national, uh, to the CDC. Um, but it is now available under the uh, emergency use authorization. We're using it here in New Mexico. And the literature I've seen, I've seen like three papers. All it does is it shortens your hospital stay by two or three days. It isn't curative. It actually wasn't designed to go up against COVID-19. They just used it as a sidebar. But there's another one which is really interesting to me called Invermectin. It's actually an antiparasitic drug used in lice, roundworms, et cetera, et cetera. And the Argentinians began using it in their healthcare workers and found it 100% effective, especially wow. when they used it with a food ad- additive called collagen. Uh, and they were using it as a preventative, the way you use hydroxychloroquine in Africa to prevent malaria. Incidentally, of all of the continents on the planet, which has the least number of COVID-19 cases? Answer, Af- Africa. Africa. Because well, the hydroxychloroquine right. is already there. And uh, it's just it's one more testament to how, uh, you know, we need to stop this false despair. False despair is dangerous. Uh, the, the human condition, we are social critters. We need to go to a play. We need to go out and go to a ball game every now and then. We need to go and see live theater or, or live music. It is part of our makeup. Even go see the Lobos. Yes, and the one exception to that is the schizophrenic. Uh-huh. So what we're trying to do here, what the politicians seem to be doing, is trying to make us into a society of schizophrenics. You've seen that T-shirt that says, the voices are back. Thank God, I was getting lonely. Well, I, I did read a recent article by a psychiatrist that a lot of his uh, schizophrenic patients are actually doing great. Oh, yeah, they enjoy this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so what we need is uh, maybe some schizophrenic consultants for our governor to teach us how to become schizophrenoid so that we can tolerate all of these shutdowns. Uh, but the danger of the shutdowns is uh, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, in terms of childhood vaccinations have been put off. Child abuse, which is picked up in the schools, is no, no longer picked up in the schools. Um, cardiovascular disease is going to be on the rise because they're just not doing the workups. Cancer screenings have really almost been squelched out. And there's huge deterioration in mental health. There's going to be great excess mortality over the next year and a half, and you have to blame the politicians for that. These are things that should have been taken care of timely but have been delayed in the name of political expedience and listening to the science, air quotes around that. Um, anyway, I uh, wanted to uh, point out the inner uh, Invermectin. I haven't heard of anybody being treated with that here yet. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything about that. Yeah, and why why would they even think of it? <laughs> well, the Argentinians published it about six weeks ago. No, but I mean, why would they use it? Uh, I mean, people just try whatever. Yeah, or maybe they observe that. Uh, well, Argentina does have more parasitic illnesses than we do. Maybe they had people on it and noticed 
that they didn't get the COVID nineteen, yeah, so they went sense. forward that makes, with that it. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but you know, one of the one of the great accomplishments of Mr. Trump is this vaccine business. We've heard from the politicians. Not until the vaccine is there can we possibly lift up on our uh, draconian measures of keeping you guys into a schizophrenic colony. And the the answer there is is it takes typically through the FDA 10 to 15 years to get a drug from the chemist shelf to the pharmacist shelf. Well, Mr. Trump with the, uh, you know, what is it, Operation Warp Speed, has managed to push development of a vaccine to 1.5 years. That is unbelievable. Uh, and, and, you know, there are many of his accomplishments that go unsung, but that one I think we need to sing about here. And what's going on is suppression of information about COVID. It's done by the they, whoever the they are. And by that, when you start finding fingerprints, you find government apparatchiks. Uh, these are people in the government who suppress information about COVID-19. And Anthony Fauci, is uh, he's a perfect example of a blunder machine. He's been around since the AIDS day. And if you go back and look at his record in AIDS, he was saying, oh, anybody in close contact to an AIDS patient should stay away because... AIDS spreads by close contact, uh, in other words, airborne. Uh, and he was wrong in that. And he caused a lot of the early AIDS patients to die isolated from their families. He actually worked to delay breakthroughs in AIDS. Uh, my friend, Dr. Jim Driscoll in uh, Las Vegas, who we've had on the show, has detailed that. When he started off with the COVID-19, I believe no masks, Right. Well, that was the word on the screen. That was the worst one. And the lockdown uh, actually uh, sort of was one of his uh, suggestions. Remember, America in our history has never done a lockdown. We didn't do a lockdown during the American Revolutionary War. And we had an epidemic going on at the time of the Revolutionary War. It was called smallpox. Far more deadly than COVID-19. And we had no uh, vaccine for it in the 1700s. Actually, they did. They uh, would take cowpox and uh, transmit it. Uh, Martha Washington, for example, got a cowpox vaccination. I think the Adams family did, too. Yes, as well. Yeah, that was the the great medical science in Massachusetts. But anyway, the point is COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. That means it's airborne, but succinctly and briefly so. Yes, it can get onto a surface and stick around for a few hours, but it turns out that as soon as that spittle or the sneeze is dry, it very rapidly knocks off colonies of the virus to where it's pretty hard to get infected. Uh, at one point in time, I was suggesting gloves would help you, but probably not. Now, the masks are minimally protective at best. The N95, the high-end masks, those give hypoxia. Uh, that means not enough oxygen, hypercapnia, that means too much carbon dioxide, and it increases your respiratory drive to where people wearing masks all the time have shallow hyperventilation, what's called respiratory alkalosis. That means the pH, the acid content, and the blood shifts, and that's not good for your health. And 
the final thing about this is there's no evidence that lockdowns work. Sweden actually has done as well or better than Britain, for example, Italy, of course, and others. And then there's the statistics. Because there's a lot of political money in the COVID-19 world, we know that, uh, according to Fauci's uh, sidekick, the Scarf Queen, uh, what is her name, Dr. Burks. Burks, Dr. Burks, thank you, that uh, there's a 25% fudge factor. So when the media says, oh, there are 8 million cases in America, uh, it's actually 6 million, 75% of uh, 8 million. And when they say there's 215,000 deaths uh, from COVID-19, that actually means 161,000 total deaths. But it's even worse. The CDC about a month to six weeks ago noted that only 6% of those claimed deaths of COVID-19 were actually from COVID alone. So that means the real death toll from COVID-19 to date is about 9,690 patients. Those would be direct deaths, direct deaths only and not affiliated deaths. Well, Dr. Summers, we are out of time, um, but I'd like to go ahead and uh, let you wrap up the show right after I tell you, our audience here this afternoon here in the Kiva, about two ways in which you can improve your life. Very easy, very fast, and, well, believe me, I stand behind it, and so should you, and so will you. You can go to the Alternative Health Clinic with Dr. Summers. It's a private pay health clinic with innovative approaches to non-opiate control of chronic pain, alternative approaches to cardiovascular health, anti-aging and bioidentical hormones, memory and brain dysfunction issues. Second opinions also offered. Mention me, The Rocker Talk, 25% discount. All you have to do is pick up the phone now. Dial 505-878-0192. One more time, that's 878-0192. Thanks to those of you who decided to pick up the phone and call to see the doctor immediately, and uh, he will definitely see new uh, Conveniently located in Uptown Albuquerque. Also, you can pick up the great product, as I have, Memory Vitalizer and Life Imagine. You can pick it up uh, here locally at a number of local pharmacies, including Sharon Care Pharmacy in Belen, Durant Central Pharmacy, Sam's Regent Pharmacy, Highland Pharmacy, Best Buy Pharmacy, Manal Pharmacy, Evergreen Herbal Market, that's up in Rio Rancho, Moses Country Store, that's in the North Valley on 4th Street, and you can head on up to Cedar Crest and go see the Village Apothecary or... Visit them online at vitasprings.com, B-I-T-A, springs.com, memoryvitalizer.net, or pick up the phone. You can also dial the following number, 800-606-0192. That's 800-606-0192. One more time, 800-606-0192. Dr. Summers, thank you for being here. Uh, I'd like to take us out in terms of wrapping the show with our wonderful guest uh, here this afternoon, Dr. Dempsey. Yeah, Dr. Dempsey, thank you for joining the show. Andy, thank you for being here. But with 17 days left till the election, I wanted to repeat George Washington's prayer for this country. Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that thou will keep the United States in thy holy protection and thou wilt incline the hearts of citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to the government and entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens in the United States at large. And finally, thou will most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and demean ourselves with charity, humility, 
and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion and without humble imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation. Grant our supplication, we beseech thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lousdale, George Washington. Thank you, Dr. Summers. See you same time, same place next week. Amen.